0: Welcome back to How They Train. I'm Jack Kelly, and today I'm joined by the great Emma Snowsell. Emma is just one of the all-time great triathletes, and, and has one of the most impressive records the sport of triathlon has ever seen. She's an Olympic gold medalist, three-time ITU world champion. She's won about 15 ITU races, podium at probably 10 others, and won a Col- Commonwealth Games gold medal on top of that. I recently, for another podcast, did a list of the top five greatest female triathletes to have ever lived, and I had Emma at number four on that list, and there's probably definitely an argument that that might be too low and was was probably the selection I struggled with the most. So if that gives you any idea of the level of triathlete Emma was, um, Emma truly dominated her er era of triathlon and was consistently the best in the world in the most competitive distance in triathlon. It's also like a a super special episode for me personally, because as a young Australian, um, watching Emma race was pretty much the first triathlon memory I ever have. And and she was a household name here. Emma, people throw around like the word legend a lot in sport, but you truly are a legend of, of the sport of triathlon. And it's seriously just an absolute honor to have you on the show. And I can't wait to spend the next hour or so hearing all about how you used to train, sessions you did, training blocks building up to big races you did, and the races themselves, your life, you know, what you've been up to lately and just all the stories that, I want to say most of my audience have probably never heard.
1: Oh, yeah. well, thank you. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's always funny hearing an introduction about yourself, and especially I feel like yeah, I've been out of the sport. I mean, I'm not actually out of the sport per se, but not competing. Um, and um, yeah, it's um, I'm glad it's, and it's funny, you know, to hear you say like an inspiration. Um, because I, you know, I, I certainly came from a place, um, where I had an inspiration as an athlete as a young swimmer, and to think that you know, I've, um, done the same, I think is probably something, maybe one of the most, uh, rewarding things to actually hear, um, you know, as a, as a beautiful byproduct of, of, you know, um, yes, sporting success.
0: Emma, can we go back to like probably the most famous day in your career, which was the, the 2008 Beijing Olympics that, that you won the gold medal at. Um, and you had a lot of big days in your career, but if we go back to that day and, and sort of i want to focus in on that period before i go back in time and and, and go a little bit earlier in your career and and then with with your career afterwards leading in, into that that 2008 olympics was like you were you were pretty much the the best triathlete best female triathlete at least for sure that the world had ever seen at that point you were completely dominating the sport and and really had been since like 2003 2004 and uh, we well, we'll probably get into the story about the 2004 olympics and how in another world you really probably should be a two-time olympic gold medalist um but but with with Beijing you like i want to hear about the the training leading into that race and and i guess i ask you like were you confident that that you were going to win that gold medal was that one of those races that you you showed up to and knew that you were the best in the world and that that race was yours to lose <laughs>
1: um oh gosh there's so much so much complexity in that um I mean, if I, if I, if I, maybe I work a little bit backwards and I I literally start at the start line of Beijing. Um, and, I mean, I remember being in the, um, you know, marshalling area. Everyone was in the shade. It was hot, ice vests, um, keeping cool. And I remember looking around at a lot of the girls and seeing how incredibly nervous they were, like just eating at them and I was like, no, I just I just had this feeling of like if this is not doing you any good, and I was nervous but excited, but also in a in a way that I was sort of I was almost a bit like an out of body experience because by the time I walked onto the pontoon, like Moffie and I were kind of giggling. Then obviously you're in the marshal's hands. Everything's quiet. I mean, I'm, I'm actually really like I can feel my heart beating really fast now thinking about it. Um, and I remember like standing back from the edge of the pontoon. And looking out at the first boy and just being like, oh, my God, this is the Olympics. How cool is this? I was just like, right, just have fun. And I kind of remember this feeling of being almost even since the morning of the race being almost the least nervous I'd ever been and being a bit nervous as to why I wasn't as nervous (laughs) as I should, if that makes sense. And the reason for that, I believe, was – if we go back even further was in the last three weeks before my, in my lead up to Beijing, I'd chosen to stay in Australia for all my lead up. Um, I really, really wanted to be um, as close to Dennis Cottrell as possible, which was my swim coach. He was Grant Hackett's swim coach. Um, I'd been working with him for since 2004 and he was my sounding board. He was my, you know, every day other than Sunday I was at the pool. Um, you know, he he didn't have a say in any of my um, other two disciplines and my training, but obviously he had an incredible awareness of, of athletes, of obviously um, training Olympic gold medalists in the pool. And it was 10 days out. Was it 10 days out to... Yeah, it was about 10, I'm trying, I'd have to literally look back now. Um, 10 days out from the race and I'd been putting together all the sessions I wanted to do, yep, yeah, ticking them off exactly where I wanted them, like, you know, you know, m- minusculely better than they'd ever been before. I was like, yep, yeah, everything's going great and showed up to Wednesday morning swim session, you know, always knew roughly what the sessions would in- encompass and I just I was just literally sinking. I was like what is going on I stopped and I was like in tears and the, I was like I just said to Dennis I was like I don't know what's wrong I don't know what's going on I can't swim I don't even know why I'm here crying <laughs> like and he's just like you have peaked too early and I was like what do you mean and he's like you need to go home and rest and you need to take it off and I was like that does not come into my equation Dennis like that that's no, I've got everything planned out to the day I'm going to travel, the sessions I'm going to do. Like I knew in my head exactly how I was going to do things. And he was like, if you don't, you won't make the start line. And I was like, whoa, that's a pretty big call. And, yeah, we talked about it and his experience with, um, with Grant, um, with other swimmers, what he'd seen. And I had got out of the pool for the first time ever didn't complete the session and I was like okay I did go home had a big sleep and his instructions were to take the rest of the day off and I would have had um, a hard ride I would have had a small run off it and I was like okay all right okay I got to the afternoon I I need to go for a little run I just need to I'm just going to go for easy jog and I just had this moment of I don't know, would you call it reflection, clarity, enlightenment? And I just remember running, I would run from my home down directly to the beach, down to Burley Heads and back along the coast. And I just remember thinking, what's going to change in two weeks when I come home? I would have gone to Beijing, I would have raced in the Olympics. First of all, how lucky am I that I've made the Olympics? Like that is my Olympic dream, you know, to be on that team. Um, whether I have a gold medal, whether I come forth, all that's going to matter is that I went there and did everything I could. And I just had this moment of like, calm come over me. And like, this is all going to look the same. Everyone's going to still treat me the same. I'm going to have a roof over my head. Like literally basic things were going through my head about this reassurance of like, all this pressure was accumulating and a lot of my own. Um, well, I would say predominantly of my own. Um, There was a lot of obviously noise around the pressure that maybe I was experiencing to do well. I think I was pretty good at, at sort of eliminating that, but I realised how great the pressure I was putting on myself. And I think I just decided to let go and be like, I do it because I love it and I do it because I enjoy it and I'm going to go there and do that, exactly that. I, I knew I was fit. I had, you know, sort of knew the mantra that, you know, 1% overdone is better than 10% underdone. Uh, sorry, was that wrong. Exactly the wrong way around. One <laughs> percent <laughs> overdone is worse than than ten percent underdone. You can get a lot more out of yourself being ten percent underdone than one than being completely fried. And I'd experienced that, um, you know, very very early on in my career, and had learnt that. And I just sort of took all these things on board and just had this this like just perspective about it and being like. Yeah. And I took that into the race. I think I, I did. I, I I, rested, I came, you know, I I managed to get in a few more sessions before I got on the plane um, to Beijing that just, you know, basically reinforced my training where I was at. And I think I, like I said, by the time I arrived in Beijing, I was so calm. I was like, so enjoying the experience. I was like, You know, I remember going to the village, I'm like, I may never get to come back to another one. You know, I may never be an athlete inside an Olympic village again, like enjoy it, experience, you know, take on the experience. And I think all those sort of um, moments just added up to me. Going into the like I said like back then to that pontoon and just being like in the moment and just being like right two hundred meters to the first boy let's go how's it you know long and strong was my mantra in the water um you know I knew it was going to be a bit of a, a shit show to the first boy get around the first boy clean you know like all the things that that go through every normal race but I think I was just so in the moment of doing what I needed to do and not trying to control myself or the situation, just racing, because I was like, I just love it. Like, I just love racing. And I think the only moment I came out of that, um, um, I guess, <laughs> in a world was when I had to jump the barricade on the run on the third lap. That sort of threw me um, and it gave me a bit of an adrenaline shock thinking, like, what on earth has just happened? Will I get disqualified? Like, you know, um. It probably felt like minutes, but I think it was, you know, maybe a few seconds where I just switched back in and was like, right, just deal with it after, just deal with it, get to the finish line. And if there's a problem, deal with it after, like, and just switch back to gear. And I think, yeah, like I just sort of, uh, yeah, I was just in this moment of like completely, well, you know, two hours of just living in the moment and just doing what I knew, I guess, not in a confident way, just doing what I knew I had trained for. Um, And I couldn't control if someone was going to be better than me on the day. I couldn't, you know, there's so many things you you can't control. And I think that was for me, um, I think I had got good at, well, I think if anything, my mental game was probably what was my best asset in some way. But maybe talking about it just now like this, maybe that was, where i guess i had really put it the best into practice um on the on the right day and the right on the right stage and and um and just something that i think like literally i just remember thinking just just until you've got that tape in your line like when it got closer and closer it was like i just couldn't even switch off because i felt almost felt like I would unplug the movie, you know what I mean? Like until I had that tape in my hand, I thought I, I might just fall over, I might just collapse. Like this feeling of, I think relief um, might overcome me. And I think I also just kept that um, until the very last minute until I was like, right, I'm here. And then I can let go and really <laughs> maybe come back into the real world. It's it's weird. It's, it's, it's almost a bit like an out-of-body experience, I have to say.
0: And you talked about then um, your swim coach at the time, Dennis Cottrell. And this is a question I really have been looking forward to, to asking you since we organised we were going to do this podcast, Emerys. Is, yeah. is your coaches throughout your career. Because I was a bit young. Like nowadays, if you were racing, I'd probably understand a little bit more. But, I mean, you've had some pretty iconic coaches in your triathlon career, maybe maybe as sort of as iconic as any, as any athlete has ever had. Like Dennis Cottrell is – he's got to be one of the greatest swim coaches of all time by record, you know, like in, as far as Australia goes, which we might have the best, we, we probably have the best swimming history um, of any country in the world. And Dennis cultural might be our most famous swim coach of all time. You know, obviously his his sort of um, star athlete was Grant Hackett, who's one of the best um, long distance swimmers the world's ever seen. But he, he coached a lot of other like Olympians, like, Olymp- yeah. like a lot of other Australian Olympic swimmers. And, and then at that time in in Beijing, I've I've never quite known were you because you were coached by um, probably the the triathlon coach with the greatest record of all time, Brett Sutton. And but were you actually coached by Brett at that time, or I, I seem to remember thinking that maybe uh, maybe Craig Walton was coaching you as well. I I was just too young to really remember the details. So I've been really looking forward to asking you what was your coaching setup at the time. <laughs>
1: Uh, that's a good question. I'm glad. I'm glad. I think we should clarify it too. Um, um, no, um, if you want the complete and honest truth, I was kind of coaching myself, but it was Brett's programs. Um, like I said, Dennis was my swim coach and my sounding board. Um, I was only coached by Brett for about, oh, when I came up to Europe to May, 2002, he quit after Athens. So like two years. So after Loretta got silver in Athens, um, he quit the sport for about a year. Um, and I think he went back to boxing or horses. I can't even remember. And, um, yeah, when he, well, it was obviously a bit of a shock to me um, because I was starting to experience um, the the sort of results that I, you know, was after. Um, but yeah, I think he was just a bit. Yeah, he'd been in the sport obviously a bit of a long time, but it really forced me to look at well, what am I going to do? Who how who am I going to get coached by? So. You know, when I came to the sport, I started in age group with the Surface Paradise Tri Club. Jenny Alcorn, who's still the coach, <laughs> um, then I went on to Bill Davern, um, then to Brett, and then, like I said, after that, I I really um, had to assess what I was going to do in terms of training. So I knew Brett's formula was working for me very well. There were a few things that I well, let's say I didn't argue with him, but I, I certainly um, questioned about some sessions that I just personally didn't feel did me well. Um, I didn't feel I got the benefit um, that I was looking for. And at the time I was with Craig and he suggested a, a very vital session that I, um, that I changed um, for a session that we used to do with Brett of 32200s Um, I think I mentioned in one of my emails that I'm a diesel engine. Speed is not my thing. And I was just always like, my calves hurt more than anything else in my body. This session, I feel like, doesn't get me anywhere. And we changed that. He suggested um, the Monoghetti set um, that he had done when he was uh, an athlete and training down in Sydney in some run clubs and I gave that a go for oh, a couple of sessions it was I swapped it for my uh, Tuesdays and it was just a session that just gelled with me immediately and I just felt I got so much reward out of so I really like I said I really kind of stuck to a program and a you know a, a simulation of training had done with Brett but I went to Dennis um, to really work on my swimming. Um, and also, like I said, to have, um, I mean, I came from a swimming background. It was really funny when I went back to him. Um, I was actually in the development squad as a young, young swimmer. And he remembered my stroke rate, my swim times from like when I was a 14 year old, I was like, this guy is a freak. Great. I love it. (laughs) Like, no, like next level. He's amazing. And, yeah, I just um, – I knew that swimming with him would also improve my overall, you know, capacity and my overall fitness for my biking and my for my running, and I thought that that would be an advantage I could continue to use since I came from that background. And the swim was just such a vital part of the race. Um, it was something that, you know, I, I really um, – wanted to make sure that set me up every time I raced. And so for those four years leading into Beijing, um it was really about that. Um Craig didn't ever coach me. He he certainly helped implement maybe um like I said the Monoghetti set. Um he he helped me do some motor pacing. Um, but he wasn't my coach per se in terms of telling me what I was doing and what my session was and how I was going to do it um, I struggled with that and um, and like I said took a lot of confidence from what I was doing with Brett and the sort of results that had started appearing at the end of sort of 03 early 04 and also some of the mistakes i done made with Brett and things like I said that I thought just didn't work for me and um, one big thing I did take into those four years is that at the end of every season I actually took a break, a proper break, um, because I was getting injured quite often with Brett and I took an end-of-season break and I think that was one of the most vital things for me because if I look at that period, it was the most consistent I ever was. It was the least injured I ever was um, and it just meant every season I had a, a an incredibly strong platform to to build upon and, and hopefully improve and i think all those things yeah leading up to beijing um yeah i think i i, I did and made the best decisions i could with with what i had
0: i can't wait to dive into this this is like this is this conversation is like a, a like a like a dream to me like these names and hearing these stories like I was a pure fan of the sport as a young kid, watching all this. So, like the inside story of this, this is this is probably like one of the most special podcasts for me ever. I just every time you're talking about, it, I start zoning out, like just picture and like it takes me back to that that time. Yeah. So I want to I want to go all deep on the the Brett Sutton um, like coaching period and and then how you implemented that program and what specifically you you were going to do and um and I really can't wait to dive into your running because. I truly believe you're the best female runner the sport's ever seen. You know, you definitely were up until the Gwen Jorgensen period, and it's you or Gwen Jorgensen. You're the two best runners that the female side of the sport has ever seen, without question, in my mind. So, I can't wait to to go into your running and and what you were doing that was making you such a good runner. But uh, let's let's start with your swimming. So, you went you went back to Dennis Cottrell to get coached by him. People are going to be fascinated to hear what what kind of sessions and what kind of training you were doing, you know, the six days a week you were with Dennis Cottrell. Not many, I don't think, I don't know if there's ever really been a triathlete in the history of the sport who has been coached by a a swim coach of that high caliber. I really don't know if it exists. So uh, I'm wondering how different it was to, to what, you know, the everyday triathlete was doing or what other pro triathletes around you were doing at the time. Can you maybe Take us in specifically, like what did a week of swimming with Dennis Cottrell look like? How much were you doing? How long were your sessions? What kind of sessions did you do? Did you do like what was a what did a weekly structure look like?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like I'll be honest, like I'm so fortunate that I was born on the Gold Coast and literally happened to end up living. like 400 meters from Miami pool. Um, you know, like, um, you know, I didn't grow up swimming in Miami pool, but I, like I said, I grew up as a young swimmer and aspired to being an Olympic swimmer. Susie O'Neill was my inspiration. Um, so, you know, triathlon we can talk about if we want to have time, but you know, that, that, that changed gears and I found triathlon. So my, my experience of swimming and my knowledge of swim sessions obviously came from that background of swimming, not a triathlon swimming background. And I mean, I, I, I guess I also knew what I was capable as a swimmer as well, just as a a swimmer alone. Um, so the sessions with Dennis, um, I swam with him. I mean, I saw him at the pool every day, but I, I swam with him three days a week for the main for my main hard, big, long hard swim session. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings. Um, and you know, basically, it was it was lanes. Lanes one and two were the real swimmers. Lanes three and four were the the sort of maybe next generation and, um, you know, like surf life saving swimmers. So like your Shannon signs and all those guys who are just phenomenal. He obviously also coached Carla Gilbert and um, he was always using her as an example for me when training. Um, and then you kind of had like lane five and six were kind of like, yeah, we have the space and okay. Yeah. The triathletes can go in there. <laughs> And I loved that, you know, like he we had this the swimmer swim sessions, um, and he would modify time cycles accordingly. But Mondays were were normally your, your long aerobic sessions, so three three hundreds or four hundreds. Um well, pretty standard is 6k for Dennis every every session, that's um first and foremost, um, with him in, in a morning session. Um, and then, yeah, Mondays were like, like I said, uh, long aerobics. So your bread and butter sort of either 300s or 400s, uh, Wednesdays were kind of more like your anaerobic stuff. So between sort of 50 uh, and 150s, um, so sort of breaking it up sort of more into a bit, I guess, like more race simulation type sort of sessions where, um, you know, the front end of the session would be, you know, um hard spike the the anaerobic um get the lactate up and then having to settle into you know race pace rhythm and then so they were typically 150s and they became my favorite wednesday sessions like coming into the last few months with him we we worked a lot on that session and i absolutely loved it um and i think actually that was The very last session I did with him on Wednesday morning before we flew out to Beijing that day. Um, And then Fridays were always 50s, always, always 50s, sprint work, speed work, um, and they, yeah, in any forms and combinations, and he would pretty much time all of them. Um, So, yeah. And that's where my long and strong mantra came from, from him, um, because like I've told you, speed was not my thing. And when I tried to go fast, um, I tended to rush and to stress. And he's like, you need to think ab- not about going fast. You need to think about long and strong in the water. And um, and so, yeah, they were the three key swim sessions with him a week. Then Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, Tuesdays were typically just a, um, a 2K uh, like recovery swim session off the run to prepare me for um, – and actually, that was a Brett session. Um, we called it the kick set. So we basically got in and, and instead of an extra long uh, run warm down, we would do some kicking, um, a few little sprints just to try and like get the, the lactic out, try and flush the body, and sort of swim it off. And that was probably like the easiest session of easier swim session of the week. Thursdays were a just not really, yeah, I guess in general Dennis terms, a recovery swim session, but they're about 4k, a 4k swim and Saturday afternoons. And they were, um, you know, more or less sort of just aerobic work with a little bit of sprint, but the three sessions with Dennis were, you know, more than enough. Like they were, hard intense sessions like I would I'd go home to bed after breakfast like I would you know do my work in the pool peel myself out have my breakfast and then basically you know have a big nap before I'd get on with the rest of the day's work so they did take a lot out of me um and I think you know it's probably not something if you hadn't grown up in a swimming background that may you know maybe not detrimental, but I guess maybe would take a lot out of someone that didn't maybe grow up in the pool in that respect. And obviously I didn't get injured because I learnt a lot of technique and a lot of things in the pool too at a young age. So I was very fortunate in that respect that I never, you know, got, you know, shoulder injuries or any swimming-related injuries. So, um, and like I said, I, I really believe that, that that swimming um, really helped my overall, um, yeah, fitness for the sport. And if it meant that, you know, um, I could get gains from that rather than, you know, pounding maybe a few extra kilometers running, then I think that was probably more beneficial to me in the sense that, like I said, I didn't come from any sort of running background whatsoever. Like I'm, I'm a triathlon runner only. Like I've, I've never done a run race per se, (laughs) um, so, yeah, there were just sort of things that I think you know, given my background, um that's that's you know what I also enjoyed too. and and I took those sessions away with me. So when I was away living or basing myself either in you know, in the US, in Canada or wherever the where the, wherever I was in the northern hemisphere for the season, I, I just I took Dennis's sessions. I had them written out. I, well, he would write them out and um, and I had a variety of them, you know, for Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, just a few alterations so I didn't, you know, maybe get so bored but they were literally mostly the same thing um, throughout the year other than, you know, time cycles obviously varied and changed according to coming back from a break and, and then as I got fitter, um, able to, you know, decrease them. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I really liked that. Um, structure and I think that's yeah that's what swimming is also about a lot
0: of structure (laughs) how did um I mean I might ask something a little bit more specific do you remember exactly like I'm assuming you do do you remember exactly what that that session of 150s was before you went out to Beijing like do you remember do you remember exactly what the what was inside that 6k and like with the 150s do you remember like time cycles and stuff would you be able to take us into that
1: yeah, yeah 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 so the the 150 so de- depending on on the week and stuff but it usually varied from the main set being 21 24 150s or um 18 150 so if they're 24 usually they'd be broken in or in both sets they'd be broken into six so the 24 150s were sometimes because they're a bit longer you know six more um you would do like three on Let's just let's just start for an easy way. Um, three on two minutes, um, two on one fifty-five, one on one fifty, and then you you start the next six again. Um, the eighteen one fifty sort of as you got fitter. And Dennis was always really good at reading me and knowing what I needed. But um, the one that probably, like I said, the the very last one I did before I went to Beijing um, was eighteen one fifties. I loved it, Dennis. Oh, we'll do a bit shorter today. I was like great Dennis, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> what 5.5k instead of six? Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> um, no, he loved it. And um, so that was, yeah, so that was so two, two on so you do two on two minutes, two on um two 55, uh, sorry, two on two minutes, two on one fifty-five, two on one fifty. And then that session that week, I managed to get my time cycle down to, <laughs> yeah, um, two on 150, two on two, 145, and two on 140 so we did that three times through and i remember doing that session being like yep okay that's probably the best i've ever swam as a triathlete so we're in a good place
0: it's so funny right because you were looked at and still are thought of i reckon as the best runner to to probably ever be uh, you know in female triathlon and at the time it was like your run was the thing like you were just running away from girls but yeah, you really never missed front packs, did you? You like you like even at that Olympics. I'm trying to remember. I haven't rewatched it many times, but you were you were like one of the first four or five girls out of the water and and you like that's a insane set. Like that's insane to do those on leaving on 140. Like you must have been swimming like 105 per 100 or you know around that. It's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, like, you know, and I had a a decent benchmark as a young swimmer that, you know, my PB was a one two. So you do have this comparative aspect of what you could do as a swimmer. Don't get me wrong, you know. Um, And so, like I said, like I knew swim sets pretty well and I had a, you know, I had a pretty good idea in the water, like in terms of a pretty good feel. And, And like I said, I think my running honestly was a translation of my fitness from swimming. Um, because I did I worked extremely hard in the pool Um, I yeah like you say like probably you well maybe say like known as a runner but yeah I very very seldom like there would have to be you know that very seldom did I not miss the front pack and if I did I was pretty annoyed and you know there's probably something that happened in the water um, have been punched in the face, have been pulled and dragged under, um, on, on the odd occasion. And yeah, I obviously had to make sure I biked up and and got myself in the right place, but yeah, those swim sessions were, were key and something that, um, yeah, that Dennis, yeah, loved as well and thrived on, on helping me improve and, and get as fit as I possibly could.
0: Do you remember what the, I'm also interested in the Monday session. So like the longer aerobic swim where you were doing like 300s or 400s and like 400s is just such a classic Australian swim coach session. Like all the great Australian swim coaches love like 10 to 15, 400 type things, don't they? Was that what Dennis would sort of prescribe you as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, 10, 400, exactly, easy. <laughs> like, it's, it's just like your bread and butter for the Monday morning, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, again, like, um, yeah, sometimes he would just, depending on the type of season, he was like, you know, just you need to be able to swim them all at a at a, at a consistent pace. I want you to swim the first one as fast as you think you're going to be able to swim the last one. Um, and then obviously throughout the season, uh, getting fitter he was like all right let's try to descend them and then I mean Dennis couldn't never help himself but it often got to okay last one let's see what we can do you know like <laughs> let's do all that I was like okay <laughs> let's do it um oh gosh for a 400 what would I have knocked out um oh my gosh now I'm really picking my brain in terms of sometimes usually I would um pride in myself on remembering this best ever I would be getting down to like a or something maybe like that when I was like having a really freakish crazy day but um yeah Dennis Dennis sort of liked the the shorter rest um yeah making sure that yeah it was what would we leave on yeah leave on like the five minutes yeah yeah he, he he was tough like he he didn't he he certainly like kept you kept you honest. <laughs>
0: Emma, a question that I've been thinking about a bit lately because I had um, American triathlete Sam Long on the podcast the other day mm-hmm. and. We started talking about his swimming and, and then there's been a few conversations off air about that because I sort of like jokingly said to him like, Sam, you just need to go live in Noosa and train with JR or go to the Gold Coast and train with, you know, just train with one of our great swim coaches. Like just go train with them for six months and it'll change the way you you swim for the rest of your career. Do you think there is something to that? Like, Do you think that like particularly back then and, and, and even now though, if you're a pro Australian triathlete, you might you might not have a world-class bike these days, but we don't really have professional triathletes that don't swim really well, disproportionately well to maybe how the rest of their triathlon um, goes, their they're riding and their running. Is there something that we do differently in our swimming in Australia or that our coaches do differently or the culture around the way that we train in, in swimming compared to some other places in the world that you've seen?
1: The the culture is incredible. like and And I think like I said like more so now since having kids and wanting them to you know get into swimming um and and have from a very young age um you know my, just myself um but the but the like I mean just the first and foremost like as young babies like you get you you can go to the pool you can get taken um to the pool you are taught, to you know it's a safety thing first and foremost to you know be safe in the water and then from from there like the affinity in which they can learn and take to the water and develop their skill is literally mind-blowing and when you come to Europe and I can't speak for the whole of Europe but as a general experience so far and you know even when I lived in we had training camps in France and um, the The culture around pool is not set up for, for for young children. It's it's to go and do laps, and it sort of seems arse about face now that I say that that people are doing laps. But I'm like, oof, they're barely keeping afloat there. You know, like it's lucky there's a line to keep them. You know, knowing which end of the pool they need to get to without drowning. You know, like it's it's a big assumption. But I what I'm trying to say is that that facility to to teach young young kids to swim. We, I would have to say, we have to be the absolute best in the world at it. Like, I don't know, particularly in America, swim schools are, are quite to that sort of, um, you know, that they have as many and quite um, as easily, you know, well, found and also facilitated in terms of swim teachers but I've always said like when I came away racing I was like my god am I so so fortunate I grew up in a country where I was taught to swim because I look around and I think the water must be a scary place for some adults like you know people are afraid to go into the water because they they don't know if they can touch the bottom and that culture of swimming is just a part of us as Australians I think and we're very lucky and then you get you are very easily if you have an affinity and you love it that you can find a place to swim with coaches in clubs with squads that um, that are absolutely passionate about the sport and then we have a lot of heroes so you know that it, it's it's all cyclical in that sense that you have people and and athletes to aspire to. So you know you're reaching that age where you're like, oh, I really love this. What who 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 do I look up to? Whether it's a soccer, tennis, basketball player. We have swimmers, and I think a combination of all those things. I mean, to give you an example, like you know I. I, I've had my kids in the water, very young age. So they, they know how to swim and stay afloat. I mean, literally like you put the, take them to a public pool here and the lifeguards are freaking out. Like, and I'm like, it's okay. Like they can swim. And then, you know, they want to put baubles on them and give them floaties and noodles. And my two are there, like, Oh no, like, I don't want this. I don't need this, you know, like, and I was back in Australia, um, um, around Easter this year, and I I took them over to Miami to the to the learn to swim. They have two thousand kids there in that pool alone signed up to do swim squad. Luca, by the time he left, I mean he's he was what six and a half when he left. He was doing medley and tumble turns and dive starts, and he's here at the pool doing swim lessons and. Every week he's like, I told the teacher I don't want to use a noodle. And I am (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) this is the contrast. That's the sort of contrast we're talking about because there's this, I guess just this, um, yeah, lack of training and knowledge about how to teach kids at a young age um, to feel confident in the water. And that really for Australians also just stems from safety. Um, and, And then the precipice for, you know, improving to swim and, it's a national sport. I think it's, it's, we're just seriously fortunate.
0: And so going, continuing that conversation. So I want to hear about the, this, the rest of this program. So that's like such a fascinating and and unique and cool story that you were coached by Dennis Cottrell. And, you know, you were probably one of the slowest people in his swim squad squad at the time, but you know, at the same time, we're, we're one of the fastest swimmers in world triathlon at the time. What um, <laughs> about the rest of this program. So, you were sort of self-coached, but you were following a program that, that probably the most successful female triathlon coach to ever live in, Brett Sutton, had sort of constructed with you and taught you and, and you were adapting to yourself. Do you remember what, what your week looked like, like particularly maybe in the build-up to your Olympic gold medal? Do you, do you remember how many hours per week total you, total you were training, how much you were riding, how much you were running, and, and then what your riding and running looked like week to week?
1: Funny, I could recite it, but I couldn't even tell you what it equates to an hour. So maybe we should write it down as we go. <laughs>
0: I'll write it down as we go. You recite it. How does that sound? See if I can keep up.
1: All right. Yeah. So Monday morning was six K swim with Dennis. Uh, Wednesday. Uh, so yeah. So Monday and then bike was three hours. Um, that would vary between it being just a long three hour ride, or there would be some sort of hour time trial efforts in there. So it would either be four by ten minutes. Um, hour time trial in there Um, but it always revolved on that three-hour mark Um, then it would be an easy 30-minute jog in the afternoon Tuesday mornings would be the Monaghetti set um, which which in essence the, the actual set itself is what
0: Two by 90, 90 seconds off.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, exactly. Two by 90, exactly. You know, exactly.
0: I, I live about 100 meters from Mona, and that's all like in Ballarat, oh, and it's great. all everyone does here.
1: <laughs> oh, it is. I remember it like on paper looking at it and thinking, what? Really? This looks like nothing. Yeah. And then it was like explained, like, okay, you know, the, the on was above. You know, faster than 10k race pace, and the the off was 10k race pace, and I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, yeah. I mean, that session was the one that really had me the closest to vomiting every week. Like that was the, the like I maintained, like one of my key key run sessions for me. So yeah, with the, with a good warm up, um, and then the monoset and a good cool down, then a 2k swim set off that kick set swim set. It was um we would do off that. Then Tuesday afternoon um, was a, a hard bike, and that was um, that was usually about an hour, like the main set. So probably about a fifteen-minute warm up, an hour worth of some sort of efforts, sort of either one-minuteers um, were typically a, a big one, um, and then most often than not a five-k run off that, just like like a literally like straight off the bike transition brick session so I'd either do that straight onto the treadmill and just set my <laughs> desired 10k race pace at the speed on the treadmill and just get on and hope my legs would keep up um that was you know treadmill training was also actually a, probably be a big key in my my running uh Wednesday morning again then was was Dennis swim set again so that was the typically the 150 session uh, again, Wednesday, another three-hour bike. Typically, that would be the easier um, one without any sort of time trialling in it um, or it would have some sort of Monday, Wednesday, Saturdays would vary between time trial and other um, otherwise hill efforts. Wednesday afternoon, again, a 30-minute run. Um, Thursday morning would be a um, uh, 25 400 set that was one i took from dennis uh dennis from um uh, from brett which i absolutely loved and thrived on um most preferably on the track um otherwise i would map out um a a path or a trail if i couldn't find that or i'd find a treadmill uh so then thursday afternoon or actually not thursday probably just try to get the swim done (laughs) um and then have a Um, a 4K swim that day Uh, Rest and Thursday afternoon would sort of be my sort of easier afternoon where I'd typically not have anything on, try to get like massage, um, anything I needed, yeah, body work. Friday morning 50s, um, Friday just a one-hour wind trainer, so either depending on what it was, it could be just some strength efforts prepping for the next day's work um so our easy on the wind trainer um yeah mo- actually mostly big gear if i know i say that mostly big gear work and then it's friday afternoon a long like 10 to 12k run but just just easy like recovery run uh saturday morning was a, a bike so either depending on like the rest of the week what I, what i'd what I'd planned it out to be um cuz obviously it sort of changed between racing and where you're at in the season um either those t- like some sort of time trial efforts again but typically I would have an hour time trial and some sort of four by 10 minutes within those two sessions of the week or or make it like um yeah, break them into five minutes, just depending on my fitness. So if I was like early in the season and wasn't handling 10 minutes, I'd break them down into into five minutes. Um, and um, and then uh, that was the only day I had off running on a Saturday and I'd have a 4K swim um, on a Saturday afternoon. And then on Sunday mornings was a long run, two-hour run, and the long run normally consisted of some sort of back end of the long run um, speed work. So with Brett, something that we <laughs> used to do was like a negative split run. So he would sort of send us out for an hour and a bit, probably about, yeah, an hour, yeah, hour and ten. I'm trying to think now. On the Oh, back in the super early days. And then he'd be like, and I mean, we'd be like, in Europe, somewhere in the middle of who we wouldn't know where, and he's like, "All right, turn around and go home as hard as you can." And We're like, "What? <laughs> what the hell?" Um, so that evolved into a bit more of a negative split type scenario session, or it then changed um, into a four by. Uh, sorry, the last, um, the last. We'd normally come back so around the hour twenty mark because there was always a big shift in your fat burning around then at that seventy to eighty minute mark. So around the eighty minute mark, one of the, my key Sunday sessions then became um, thirty five on, thirty five off for the last twenty minutes, um, and that was a bit like the Monagetti sort of faster than ten k back it like back it off to ten k pace and then um, and then just jog home the rest. And then Sunday afternoon would be uh, an easy thirty-minute job.
0: So probably it's probably around twenty-eight to thirty-two hours in that range, isn't it?
1: I would say, in terms of like when that included like no volume work, like in season work, yeah, you're probably right. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I'd literally have to write it down. Um, so I didn't do obviously. I, I you yeah, know, well, I'm a big believer. You can't do both. You can't do massive volume and High intensity. I mean, Christian Blumenfeld is proving that very, very wrong, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not a guy and I'm not going to go there. Um, um, and and um, But I also, one of the biggest key things for me in, oh, I was already doing it before Commonwealth Games, was Pilates. So I, in the lead up to Beijing, I was doing a hour and a half of Pilates three times a week as well. Wow! And that was my that was my strength training. So I didn't react um, very well to gym and heavy weights, um, and I really found Pilates really helped strengthen and and yeah, also stretch. But it just it just worked for me and my body, and I had a, an excellent. Um, teacher but I was already seeing her I reckon not long after I left Brett and I was basing myself more you know when I was in Australia so I reckon it was also around the 2000 and yeah probably 2005 mark I was already seeing her.
0: So when I want to talk about your running like uh, this is probably the thing I've wanted to talk to you most about because you were such a dominant runner like how many how many races in that like five six seven year period did you get off with girls and just completely destroy everyone on the run? Like I feel like it happened almost every time you raced for for almost half a decade, maybe even closer to a decade. Um, and so it's just so fascinating to hear about the the exact training you were doing in your running back then. Um, and like if we talk about the Beijing Olympics, I mean yeah. that that race was won as soon as the bike finished. You guys come off in, came off in a group off the bike and and you ran well over a minute faster than second and third. And, and even more like, even well, like, you know, two minutes, three minutes to everyone else in the race, you, you completely destroyed the field on the run there, which was quite different to the men's race, where it was a very tight run with, with lots of people in contention, you know, you absolutely dominated that race. And, and that was the Emma Snowsall way. So <laughs> what, what do you think it was that separated you? Cause you know, it's funny. You talk about yourself as you were a swimmer and that's sort of what you identified <laughs> as before a triathlete. So
1: I can I can tell you exactly where that came from that <laughs> um okay so first of all my running like I said like it really um it, it it was basically taught to run off a bike so 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 Brett's method of running was um was all about turnover was obviously exhausted your quads um you know bike riding I mean this is all very old school methods like don't get me wrong this is probably not necessarily actually how I would even do it these days, um, but this was how I was taught, so much so that he even gave me a little beeper, which you use in the pool for your stroke rate, but he gave it to me to run with in order to teach me to run at 100 cadence. So basically um, it wasn't about stride length. It was just about turnover, and in the beginning it was still super odd, like super weird, like like road runner. You're like, this just seems like my legs are going too fast for what my, my brain can possibly um, <laughs> keep up with. But um, he made me run with that until basically it just, it started clicking. So even an easy run was at hundred cadence. So if we're running at six kilometre an hour pace, 10 kilometre, like an easy run, it had to be not six, 10 kilometre an hour pace. Um, he wanted us to be running at 100 cadence. So that was something that he taught. So then that was fine. We, we got the gist of that and we got the turnover and the sessions started coming and, you know, um, and especially the treadmill also really helped with that, I have to say, um, really helped just, um, yeah, having to focus only on your turnover and, and just the speed and your legs. And then it would have been... 2002 world cup Nice. he came and watched the race and my really you know training was getting a lot better i was starting to get closer and closer to, to podiums um i was training with lizzie blatchford and we were sort of always put together to you know train like we were sort of on the same program training and racing and so he knew where we were at. And then he was like, all right, I'm going to come to Nice. And, what, and he didn't really come to the races at all. I'm going to come to Nice. And I was like, okay, cool. So we get off the bike. And do you remember Anya Dittmar? Yeah. The German? Yeah. So get off the bike, 10K. And Anya Dittmar, Liz, and I are running together for. Yeah, we, we sort of had it. We got clear of, of the other girls. It was just the three of us running. Anya just sort of sat in. Me, the idiot, just sat out the front in the wind. Like, yep, yeah, all right, this is the pace. I'll, I'll just do what I've been, been training to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I still remember this. <laughs> Literally, like, you know, you do your laps, but then this this finish line was like one you did, like, basically you came around instead of going back out on the promenade and doing another lap, you, you went down the finish, which... Was probably two hundred meters long. Probably, probably it was only a hundred. I swear to God, I literally lost by that hundred meters. Like the like Liz got second, I got third, Anya got first. And I swear Anya had crossed the line, and I'd probably just come out of the bend. Like I did not have a sprint cell in me, and Anya was of, was also a little bit of a freak of nature. Could out, also out sprint a lot of the German boys. Um, but Dennis, Dennis, Jesus, um, but, but when I, you know, I was stoked, I came third, but, um, Brett was just like, oh, Jesus Christ. He's like, (laughs) I mean, he, he, uh, yeah, uh, he basically was like, right, we're going to have to turn that around. We're going to have to figure out another strategy. He's like, you have got absolutely no hope in ever winning a race in a sprint finish. You are going to have to. You're going to have to clear yourself out basically of the field straight out of transition so that you've got no one around you near the finish line because you've like literally, he's like, You've just got no hope. And I was like, Okay, that's like, I'm fine with that. I get that. I feel that. I acknowledge that. Like, what do we got to do? So that's why a lot of my brick sessions pretty much became about getting off the bike and going out at race pace was just honing in and practicing to go out of transition at race pace because I just couldn't afford to sit in a group and 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 try for any sort of tactical <laughs> move or sprint. Um yeah, I mean even even in the early days like of going uh, like of going and training with Brett, like he was like, you're not built for short course racing. Like you are um like he's like, I'll I'll let you have a go, and just you can get it out of your system while you're young, and get your whole Olympic thing out of your out of your head, and then we'll go to Ironman. And I was like, okay, cool. That's yeah, I I want to really go to Olympics, but yeah, I agree. Like I'm 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 a diesel engine. Like I'm 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 built for the longer stuff. Um, and yeah, he he did. We did do some time where he toggled me between um doing some of the the long course girls training and and the um and the shorter stuff in in different times and, and i did um i think i wrote that to you i did a, a 70. Uh, no uh, yeah did 170.3 and hated that but i did one itu long course and i loved that like so yeah that's that's where my running came from honestly like it really came out of like a dire need to not be not have anyone around me um anywhere close to the finish line because I just, I wouldn't have even barely made it onto the podium because it just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a part of my, (laughs) of my genetic makeup, no matter how much we, we, you know, tried it and trained it. And like I said, that's why like the 200 set just never worked for me. Like trying to hone in for speed. I was like, Brett, we've done these sessions so many times. Like I'm just not improving. Like, and I knew this as a kid swimming, I was like, sprint stuff in the pool is not my thing. Like I I knew as a young swimmer, like three K into the swim set, I'm like, Oh, there we go. Now I'm feeling good. Yep, I'm I'm ready, I'm warmed up. And the second three K I'd be like, Right, yeah, this is awesome. I'm feeling great, you know? So I think if you look at all that and you put into a triathlon context, I think I honestly looked like a good runner because it was just towards the end of the race and my diesel engine was <laughs> was firing.
0: <laughs> so read this Emma like it, yeah. It's. I said this to you um, off air, it's like, how were you not a five-time Ironman world champion? It's still one of the most mind-blowing things to yeah. me that that you're not in that category with Chrissy Wellington and Daniela Reef. To me, like watching you at the time, looking back on your career, it just seemed, it just seemed so obvious that you should have four or five Kona victories under your belt. So, and what you're saying then backs that up. And, it, you know, Brett Sutton saw that in you the same way he probably saw it in Daniela and Chrissy, two two girls he coached for that.
1: Should we do a second a second episode on how they should have trained podcast? I know. But why,
0: <laughs> why didn't it happen?
1: Um, oh, that's a long – I'll try and find the quickest way around it. Um, uh, well, I didn't retire on my terms and my – the way I would have liked to, Um, I was, well, I, yeah, I had to end my, I I had to end my career for my health, for health reasons Um, after, oh, this is a super long question. But, yeah, anyway, I wanted to go, I've got, I I wanted to go to Ironman in 2009 after the Olympics. Um, Like I said, I was, I I, I was definitely had an Olympic dream I definitely you know was very um uh committed to pursuing that um like I said from a young swimmer as an 11 year old um and then it changed to triathlon. but I was I was dead set ready and keen to go to um to Ironman the following year and and a lot of my um you know end of, well I should say after a break sort of pre-season training was was yeah longer 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 miles and training and longer bikes and and I I I loved it I really enjoyed it um and the thing well a number of things happened um the sport changed um from a one day uh, world championship um I remember going to the press conference after Beijing and them announcing this whole you know WTS and and what it was going to be a point system and that the world championship wouldn't be determined off um a one day race, and I was like, excellent, awesome, because I like one day races, and this is great. I'm out of here. <laughs> um, um, series, no, uh, mm, yeah, not my thing. Um, I, yeah, I like, I like, um, yeah, the the prep for a big event. I like, I like the pressure I put on myself for big races. Um, and I think if I'm totally honest, I, I really got sucked into it by, um, a variety of people, reasons, factors to, um, to basically start that 2009 season. Um, um, I, you know, I'll put it out there. Um, basically it was just going to look bad if the Olympic champion didn't, um, yeah, come to the sport and um, come to our first ever uh, new launched race series. That's something that, um, yeah, I probably should have just conceded in my own decision that, of what I wanted, but I, I I guess I just in some way tried to, um, yeah, do the right thing and give back to the sport that had obviously provided me so much, but I, I knew I knew it was the wrong thing to do. Um, I had a very strong gut instinct, but my gut instinct went back even earlier than that. Um uh, not taking the time after Beijing to completely recover and rest. Um I mean, I was on I was on the edge. Like, I mean, within I reckon 48 hours, I sort of had, you know, head cold, cough, being around obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of People, I don't know how many people <laughs> touched me and, you know, it was sort of like, all right, you know, you know, pre-COVID days like <laughs> times a thousand. Um, I remember being, Moffy and I being dragged out of or basically escorted by, you know, um um security when we went to one of the the malls to go pick out an outfit for the oakley party (laughs) like it was it was next level you know high density people but i just knew my body was was the fittest it had ever been it was very on edge and i knew it would take if i wanted my career to keep going I knew I would have to take some time out, out from the sport and really let my body recover, let my mind refresh, let me recalibrate. And funny enough, on the plane back from Beijing, I was speaking to a lot of the swimmers and they were, you know, Liesl, they'd been to, what, three games already, you know they they said the same thing they read and I was like so how long are you talking and you know and I, in my mind I was like three months it was I was dead serious like three months I want I want away from the sport I just wanna I just want to do other activities you know I'll still keep fit but I just don't want any sort of structured triathlon training I just want to have fun I just want to debrief and and then you know whether it was Kona two nine or two ten I, I it wasn't crossing my mind I just knew that I would prepare for it when I was ready um the swimmers reiterated that and it was like if you ever want to go to another games you really need to do this take this time so I was like yep all right that's what I'm gonna do um I yeah by the (laughs) by the end of 2000 well a few months after that (laughs) probably why I wanted to clarify up who was coaching me because Obviously, uh, I was in a relationship that wasn't a healthy one. And um, the new uh, Olympic triathlon coach of the world um, took it upon himself that he was going to start a squad and training. And um, it was about time that I um, showed up and started training And that I should uh, stop being lazy and that if I'm ever going to be any good again, then I better start training with his group now. And I'm like, okay, I've never trained with a group outside of Brett. It's been Lizzie and I. And I have to actually mention that Lizzie Blatchford was one of the most outside of Dennis instrumental people in my lead up to Beijing as a training partner, um, especially um when she didn't make those Olympics for the UK. Um, she actually basically trained with me um as much as she could and, and even forfeited some of her own season to to be with me and do some key sessions, particularly when I was in the States. But um yeah, all of a sudden this this yeah olympic training squad came out of the blue and i yeah um i guess i went against my gut instinct to take the long break that i wanted um and that i really craved and um yeah started showing face and like i said the the prospect of needing to show up for the, the races, I think in April, the following year I was like, yeah, you better, better not make a fool of yourself. Um, and just a very, um, yeah. Uh, uh, challenging period because it was, like I said, something I knew in my heart and gut instinct that it was not the right thing to do even showing up to Dennis, he was actually shocked um, when I came back to squad and he um, was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. Um, and I remember diving in, actually even diving in the pool and being like, this is, I mean, sounds weird to say, but I was like, I still feel way too fit. Like I had a bit of a break after Beijing, but not the sort of, you know, at the end of the season, you should you should come back after a break and feel like, oh, my God, this is – I'm so unfit. Oh, I'm going to – oh, but you're, like, motivated to get back there. You know what I mean? Where I was, like, I'm swimming way too fast, way too easily, and I just felt like my body had not come down, and I just knew – I knew my body had to come down if it needed to ever, ever come up again. Like, it was just this overarching, overriding – um yeah feeling and thought that i had and i continued to go against it um just listening to yeah outside voices and not my own and yeah by the time i reckon i mean if i'm completely honest i remember thinking i'm going to have to have an injury or something to warrant being able to stop like that's how this is and it sounds sort of strange to say but I kind of was in that position um, where it was like I was going to have to have a legitimate reason to have to stop um, because I'm not being heard and I by I reckon by May just before I was meant to go overseas I was having some pain in my hip uh, it was well I'd had my sports doctor was like hey I have a feeling it's a labral tear couldn't pick it up on scan she's like let's let's treat it you know like it's a stress fracture then rest it till you go you know for a few weeks go away to race and then try race on it and I was like okay I don't think it's a stress fracture but I'll try it I went to Washington this was in 2009 so must have been around already this second or third race of the the new WTS season um, and immediately it was the same. I was like, no, nah, this is not a stress fracture. I think I got back on the plane after the race and I think I was in surgery, yeah, not long after that. So that forced me, yeah, to have to rest. <laughs> um, it also meant I missed the only world championship well grand final that was also another part that I think you know was fun and exciting to think that there was a world championship on the Gold Coast but it certainly wasn't like a driving motivation for me I was I was like okay time in life like I felt like you can't have it always or your way or all at once it would have been nice and maybe I could have um yeah maybe I could have have, um you know done enough races in between some Ironman training to get enough points to be able to race the world championship race but in no contention for the actual title Um, purely just to be able to race on home soil but because of that surgery I even missed that and it was just a downward spiral from there and then and, um, that was what so September then October 2009 I took my first ever proper holiday like like I said I took right like, breaks from training but I was just always at home on the Gold Coast and resting and I went to Lizzie Blatchford's wedding in Bali and I contracted a virus called cytomegalovirus Um, which I didn't obviously know what it was at the time. Um, But I got that in October 2009. Didn't probably receive the diagnosis until March 2010. And in that period, I was um, very sick. I... I um, was sleeping probably 14 hours a day. I could not exercise at all, like at all, could not even walk 700 metres to the beach. Um, I, yeah, I think I was at a point where, well, we were doing all the testing for Ross River, Glum, I'd... um. Epstein Bar, they were starting to look at um uh some other viruses, other diseases, and in the very last test before I found out this one. <laughs> basically, they were like, All right, so what your blood work actually shows, if we don't find something in this test, we're going to start looking for cancer markers because your body is just like it's 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 empty like you don't even have white blood cells to fight whatever you're fighting like normally when you're sick you have your red goes down your white goes up and like I was having to write food diaries because they're like we don't even see any protein in your blood like it was you know like it was a bit baffling to them and so I was like okay that's that's pretty serious like like okay, let's hope we find something in this last blood test. And fortunately, um, this virus then showed up. So we kind of knew what we were dealing with. Um, And it sort of also explained my uh, symptoms and what was going on. But it, you know, it um, well, it pretty much changed my life, actually, not just career. Um, And then, yeah, I had moments of coming out of that virus which is quite typical where you you sort of go into a bit it goes into a bit of remission and you start feeling a bit better and you feel a bit normal and I remember um actually showing up to the pool and Dennis didn't really fully understand where I'd been and I'm like no Dennis like I know you've seen me in this aspect, but I cannot explain to you like where I've been these last five months. Like I've literally like, cannot peel myself off the floor. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I, I knew fatigue and I knew, um, mental draining and what, what it was. And it was, it was nothing like this. And my goal when I went to the pool that day was like, okay, if I ever want a race, I need to swim 1500 minutes and I put flippers on. I had to stop every 50 metres and I think it took me about 40 minutes to do. Like that's where I was at. But I was like, all right, it's a start. So we start. And I sort of got some whiffs of getting up to train again and it sort of would last for a few weeks at a time. And I got, you know, continued training and, um, And then I was like, okay, maybe I should just do what I know and not throw anything new at it and try and race again. And I went to Seoul in 2010, and that race was very infamous with every single person that swam in that water. And Daniela also contracted the same uh, gut problems that I did that, we tackled for years, years afterwards, but most, most of the other athletes who were healthy basically got rid of it um, one way or another um, um, within sort of 24 hours of the race. But I think being as uh, immune compromised as I was, I was a very good host and I then was dealing with parasites in my gut um which is a double whammy because that absolutely destroys your immune system as well and so i then basically just went on this roller coaster of being able to train being able to not train being sick every 3 weeks honestly every 3 weeks with some sort of sore throat sinus infection no one would get it i wouldn't get it from anyone else it wasn't contagious and I, I, yeah, I got a few, I would say, last you know, fumes, um, Budapest being one of them, you know, races where I just managed to string a bit of enough training together to um, to get by. And then it just, you know, it just continued to eat away, I guess, at my immune system and, and continued to affect my training that, to a point where I had to have the conversation with myself, like, am I ever going to be a normal health and healthy functioning human being, let alone an athlete. And, and I, I was like, I I obviously have to change something so dramatically in order for my body to ever recover that, I'm um, obviously the training is a stress and um, yeah, I had to make a huge, huge decision because I was like, I'm just, I felt like I was just banging my head up against the same brick wall. Like it, the cycle had been going on by the time, you know, I really figured that I had to retire um, nearly three, four years um, where I was like, yeah, this is, this is not going away. I'm, I'm not improving. I'm not getting better. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm on a constant, uh roller coaster here and um and that was a quick surefire way to yeah ever stop me getting to uh yeah race in the long distance so that is the long-winded version of why I did not ever (laughs) get to go and race there
0: it's um it's like even just listening to it it's like I'm just a fan of, of you and followed your career closely and it's such a even for me, I'm just like, I just have these thoughts of just like, but what if, and like, that must be such a hard thing as an athlete that was so good. Like you were, you were from, from really like 2003 to 2008, you had as good a patch as probably any athletes ever had, you know, like, I would say it was quite reminiscent of the patch that Alistair Brownlee had from like 2009 to 2013 or that, um, yeah. that your husband, Jan Frodeno, sort of had from like 2016 or 2017, 2016 to 2019. And there's been very yeah. few triathletes, or like Daniela Reese' patch is probably the, the other one that's most similar to it. Very few triathletes have had a four or five year period like you had that was, you were just... So clearly the best triathlete on the planet at the time, and and completely dominant. To then have this sort of tale of of, of two different stories, you know, that that pe- period in your career, and and then how it finished, which was not at all like like how it had started. Hey, and 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 like it's just to me, there's just so many what ifs. Like you were so good, and and you were still young. Like you were, you won the Olympic gold. You were 27, I think, weren't you? Yeah um like you had your career ahead of you still so it must be like it must have been so hard to come to grips with like i still think i'm capable to win the ironman world championships and and probably win lots of them and and have that that you know series of unfortunate events and 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 sickness and and poor health that that ended up ending your career
1: yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's taken a very long time to work um, work through it, like, um, you know, from going from one end of the spectrum to, you know, like I said, like, you know, literally feeling, you know, the fittest you've ever been, the most, you know, healthy, alive you've ever been in your life on top of the world to literally the opposite end of the spectrum is one thing. Um, but definitely, like I said, not definitely not done with, was definitely not done with a sport. Like I, I, want I, I had very clearly, uh, I guess like a, a second aspect of the sport that I really loved and really wanted to go after, um, in that, in the Ironman distance and, and you know, what we've touched on, I, I, I knew within myself as a young age I was a I was a diesel engine. I mean you're already in the pool. I was sort of being geared towards the eight hundred meter event, you know, that was basically the longest for females or open water. And um and I and you know, obviously in Australia there's a huge strong history of Kona and and um and I yeah, I I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to experience it and um yeah, it's 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 been a challenge. It's been really tough to to come to terms with and to uh, get my head around it. And um, yeah, taking a lot of a lot of work um, on the mind, <laughs> um, and the soul, not the body this time, um, to to realise that yeah, life is not always about um, yeah, probably how you imagine it would have been. And, and the lessons learned of not, you know, listening to my gut instinct is, 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 is a tough one. And, um, and yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, Jan and I, like, like I said, I, I joke that I live vicariously through him. I'm, I'm not a, a freak that I obsess over what he's training and doing, but I, I, I love high performance. Don't get me wrong. Like I love high performance sport. I love um, if anything, mostly the mental aspect of what goes into it of of an athlete, and and if the mental state is right, then the, the body will follow. And and um, yeah, I guess I get to see that with Jan and experience that. Um, and and at least I've got to go to Hawaii and Kona and, and celebrate um success with him. Um, but you know, I mean, even even when we first ever went there, and Jan had no intentions of ever going to Ironman like never ever did it cross his mind and um yeah i don't know i wouldn't say i pushed him into <laughs> into it but i definitely was like like i saw the way he trained when i met him and and i was like you just you just train for Ironman like you're training stupid for short class like like what i see and how you race like if you just get the right if you get yourself like designated to you doing longer course like you'd be no 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 anyway he we once he went to Kona and and watched as a spectator he was hooked he was like okay there is something about this place this island the race I was like I told you (laughs) so yeah it's um it's all a journey all a challenging journey but um yeah, it's funny because Marini and I were in the uh, first ever development squads in, um, in the AIS as, as it was a junior squad back in early 2000. And um, I think it was 10 of us, five girls, five guys. Um, Nikki Butterfield who used to race, um, uh, uh, Annabelle Luxford, Luke McKenzie was in it. Um Paul Matthews like was a really good like junior squad, but Rinnie and I were the worst, like literally the worst at testing, all our like you know, VO2 Max and la la la. We're just like, whatever. Like we're always the ones just putting in the work with kids, and then it was always so funny when she just like started killing it in Kona and I started having race results and shortcuts. We're like, see? See, you don't have to be the best test results. <laughs> you just have to just have to keep working away. <laughs> um, so you know, I would have absolutely loved to have yeah, gone and raced with her. Um, and then seeing Daniela make the shift from short course racing over. And um, she obviously continued to work with Brett. Um, yeah, I would have loved to have been a part of that era. I I really would. I would have absolutely Loved to have challenged myself over that distance and um and particularly that race. I, I loved racing in heat and humidity. So I think that was also a massive draw card for me um to win a race in in, in Hawaii. Um and like I said, just felt that yeah, just felt that my my body was just literally more built for, for that type of racing and that distance, you know, seemed to to be another mind game as well, which I think was also intriguing to me is to to how to to correlate and translate that mental conditioning from what I knew over two hours to um you know over nine hours. Um well hopefully not over nine, but you know, <laughs> um to that, you know, much longer day out there and and um and learn you know, take elements of what I knew and learnt from from short course racing into into long course. So, yeah, you, you just have to, uh, yeah, like I said, do, do do the inner work to come to terms with it, and um, and and then continue to enjoy and and um, yeah, witness and watch the sport from a from a different place.
0: I am keen to dive into the UN Yarn situation. Like that's like crazy, right? Like of all the the Greatest triathletes to ever do it, you know. Yarns probably the the greatest long course triathlete of all time, and in my opinion, probably the greatest triathlete of all time. And and you're arguably the the greatest female to ever do short course, you know. Or well, Flora Duffy's certainly challenging you, challenging you at the moment. But it's oh, you, she, it's she you and her. a Pretty
1: fast run in Abu
0: Dhabi. Yeah, it's you or her, and and I know that that uh, the competitor in you probably wishes that you could uh you could have a a, a showdown with Flora Duffy.
1: Oh, man, I honestly, like I honestly only miss short course racing when I watch Flora. She just oh I don't know, just she's just so strong over all three. And I just yeah, obviously I know her, you know, more than anyone else on the circuit too. And um yeah, I mean I we knew her husband Dan long before we met Flora, but yeah, I don't know, we just sort of have this connection like we've known each other a lot lot longer and um but yeah, when I watch her race, it's the only time like I'm like, damn. God,
0: I'd love to be racing. <laughs> peak Emma Snosal and Peak Flora Duffy is like a dream matchup. Like oh, I know that Flora and Georgia Taylor Brown have a rivalry, but the Flora <laughs> D- Peak Flora Duffy and Peak Emma Snosal would be one for the absolute ages. Um, and yeah, I'm keen to I'm keen to hear about about Yarn and 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 yeah. I've got a few questions around that. But just yeah. one more about about your racing before I go on to that what yeah. do you think like obviously you're synonymous with that that gold medal at beijing and and honestly probably more so because yam won it as well and you're married and you both won uh the triathlon games gold medal on the same day like that's a that that race became really synonymous, synonymous with you yeah. but what do you think is the greatest race that you ever did
1: um you know i think oh I actually, you know, and I'm going to say greatest because I probably would say favorite in the sense of um, um, probably because it was also before Beijing was. It was actually Melbourne, um, with Commonwealth Games, and I think I say that because you know, like, how often do you ever get to compete in your home country? You know, on home soil, and obviously outside the Olympics, the next biggest you know, event on the world stage. And, um, you know, I think by that stage already I was, you know, probably getting, gaining a lot of pressure on myself too um, to do well. But I think just, um, you know, and, and I would say I never put any race together perfectly. I I mean, Jan's, you know, we sort of have this weird thing. We always seem to somehow fumble, like transition or something stupid like, You know, like where you're like that just didn't need to happen. But um, I don't know. I think I say with Com Games, like I think just putting that together in conditions like I'm not a cold weather racer. I I, I always struggled in Melbourne. I found cold, and and I think just all those sort of things where I was like, yeah, I'm really proud of that race. You know, like um, peaking in March. Um, was not ever an ideal time either you know we were all used to peaking in in September Um, and I think yeah just a combination of probably first ever dealing with that pressure too from I guess the 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 triathlon world which which you live um, was something yeah where I would say yeah that was like a big big milestone I think for me um, in the sense of um, you know those aspects that come together. because there's been times, you know, like I would say, yeah, okay, Budapest being one of the later ones, maybe one of my better runs, um, but I, you know, I just felt like my swim wasn't great, and the ride, I was, you know, I didn't feel like it. You know, I'm, I'm like Flora. I, I, I like a, a, a an honest bike ride, and I, I like a hard, strong race where I feel like every, you know, you're doing everything. And I felt Budapest was. It was because of the rain and a variety of factors. It became a safe race, you know, like just keep upright, keep safe, keep warm because it was also cold. And just like, just um, you know, you know what I mean. Like when you think about races and what's your greatest, I, I really have to say, like, yeah, um, Melbourne just stands out to me so much. Like I think the emotions of the feeling, the crowd, and all that sort of thing is just something that makes it so much better than 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 any whatever fastest best you know performance out there
0: i've said this to you again something else i've said to you off air like when we've been talking in the last few weeks emma is that that's my first ever real triathlon memories um and arguably the reason why this podcast exists is that uh, i was sitting in my in my lounge room watching the 2006 commonwealth games and 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 watched you win that gold medal and I, I I don't know if before that I have any real triathlon memories or whether I've just like put them in my head from photos and, and watching videos and being like a, a bit of a geek of triathlon history and going back and watching races. But the first vivid... I know for a fact I watched it and was like, what is this triathlon memory was, was you in, in 2006 at the Commonwealth games. And, um, and I loved that race. And like, I remember every moment of that race. Like for example, Flora, Flora Duffy was in that race and we're talking about ideal matchups. I reckon she came at a guess like seventh or eighth in that race. And you probably beat her by about three or four minutes. And, um, yeah, I, I remember that race so clearly. Um, so I just—it's uh, uh, a funny side note story that without you r- racing that day, and like I just remember how good I thought you were then. And I was just a kid who was into running and swimming and, and footy, as an Australian kid is, and but didn't really yeah. follow triathlon. Like I came from Victoria, we didn't really have triathlon; wasn't big then, the way it is now with social media and. And access to be able to see everything whereas you sort of Queensland kids you know triathlon was part of it and, and ocean swimming and that kind of thing but it was my first real memory and yeah maybe maybe me being such a fan of triathlon and this podcast existing is because of your performance that day which is quite a wild you don't know the effect you have on people as an athlete story isn't it?
1: yeah yeah no it's so true so true yeah yeah no so much has changed jeez i mean you were sent home in beijing for any social media then you know like facebook it was like no nah, back on the plane <laughs> so yeah, that how things have changed huh?
0: pretty crazy uh, and then yeah. let, let's talk about um you and jan Fredino because i think i think like well i don't know if this is I, I i talk about this a bit on the podcast that triathlon is a different sport with its fan base um like me and you as australians we can probably resonate with the idea that you get a football team when you're a kid. And and if anyone asked you what football team you go for, you'd probably say this same team from when you're five to when you're 85. And, you know, you, you sort of, if you live in Australia, you might not exactly know what's going on, but you'd always know like one player playing in that sport or, you know, you'd follow it for your whole lifetime, even a little bit. Whereas, And I'm sure sure lots of countries are like that with soccer or basketball or whatever the sport is. Um, But with triathlon, I feel like we have a bit of a more transient fan community. Like you have people who come in and want to do an Ironman or do an Ironman 70.3 and they'll get really into the sport for five or six or seven years and then they'll move away from it. And we don't really have... Like, I don't know what percentage, but I reckon a pretty low percentage would be lifelong triathlon fans, follow it from when they're like 15 to when they're, you know, on their deathbed. Um, and so I, I often talk about how the sport can have a bit of a shorter memory and the history of the sport gets lost a little bit and and people might not know, you know, who was the best triathlete 15 years ago and what races did they do and that kind of thing. And yeah. But everyone can tell you, like, you know, everyone knows about Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and um, Lucy Charles Barclay at the moment and Flora Duffy. And so I love like um, – I love going back and, and hearing stories like yourself from, from one of the all-time greats. And and I, I, I sort of wonder with you right now, because you're married to Jan Fredino, who is, you know, everyone's f- favourite triathlete, you know, of the last <laughs> five years and he's the biggest name in the sport and, and really probably the biggest name the sport's ever had. And do, do you sort of – do you ever just think like – do these triathlon fans know me as Emma Snosel the, the triathlete and the Olympic gold medalist and one of the greatest to ever do it? Or, or do now people see me as like Jan Fredino's wife, the, <laughs> the wife of the greatest triathlete to ever do it? Is that like, I've always wanted to ask you that question.
1: Um, I have my moments. <laughs> I have my moments where I'm like, do you know who I am? Yeah. No, I'm joking, um, no, I, I, um, yeah, I guess it's like anything, you know. Like obviously, I, uh, um have been, yeah, for uh, the better part, I guess, of Jan's career now, particularly, you know, beating me to the game of being the first Olympian and Kona winner. Um, I'm not gonna lie, that was that was definitely on my bucket list in life, <laughs> um, and I, I, yeah, I, I laugh. And I joke that I live vicariously through him. Um, but you know, there there is a part of me that, you know, obviously um, sometimes I feel like yes, I'm just the wife, and yeah, we have a family and things have changed drastically since we met and his career, and and um, and you know, like you said, the sport's evolved in in so many ways too. But I think um, you know it's like a, you know it's a bit like the beginning of the podcast. Like I think there's something that you know for me I I need to, yeah it resonates that I am was an athlete a long time ago and I had my own results and and what I like and I take from that I guess particularly with Jan is that I obviously understand what he does in a very unique way um, and. I think, yeah, if anything, I obviously support that more than 100% and I would like to think that I help to facilitate whatever he needs to do to to continue doing what he wants in his career. Um, I guess firsthand I know what it's like to, um, you know, um, not have that anymore and to maybe, you know, not finish on your own terms um but also what it takes into putting into it and um so i think you know there's like this cross pollination of you know of, of the, of the slides of, of me and um and how it and, you know how it works and i guess in in this relationship and yeah there's certainly times where it's like now we're you know reflecting on my career is one part but um, you know looking if I was to look from the outside at Jan I'm like okay yeah okay yeah he seems like a big deal and I'm like yeah but he's also just a general normal guy <laughs> he, he just loves the sport he, he loves what he does and um, and I think that's um, yeah a vital part to helping him do what he does but also Helps me support it also even more too because I I understand the ups and downs and the flows of injury illness uh, racing not racing all the things that go with it and and you know probably can sometimes help put a different perspective on it too when you're also living and breathing and and you have a, a build up of fatigue and of training and and um, commitment fatigue of you know. Doing all the things you need to do to keep, yeah, the the other aspect of the business running of sponsors and and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, I think I I think we've yeah, I think somehow or rather another. I mean, I was I was I was pretty hell bent. I never dating another triathlete um ever again um, but um somehow we ended up here and um yeah I think we I think we work I think we both um work probably just because it just we just had a passion and a love for this sport and a love for competition and I think realizing that like we both love big day competition and we love knowing how to get the most out of ourselves and um and and what that takes and and um I think that's that's probably also unique um so yeah it's it's a yeah I think we've got a good mix I think I think we, we I think we make it work
0: <laughs> and so with um with yarns training at the moment do you ever like, and I, pro- I know the answer is probably not he's coached by Dan Lorang and that kind of thing do you ever have any input into what's going on like are you are you involved in that way like you have so much experience like there's never been a more experienced you know partnership in the history of triathlon do you do you guys talk about training now like are you sitting down at the dinner table discussing training do you ever throw around ideas like right now for example I mean Jan's coming back into one of the toughest periods of his career like people are questioning him can he can he go and beat christian blumenfeld and gustav eden and and is the new generation in sam laid though and magnus ditliff going to take over do you guys have normal conversations about training and about these things that that we'd all be so fascinated if we could be sitting there fly on the wall listening to you to talk or do you not really? Do you not really have that that aspect to your relationship, and you're more just an everyday normal couple who talk about your kids and going skiing and drinking coffee and that kind of thing?
1: Um, I would say we like I actually, if anything, I think maybe the reason why we work is that we well, when we met, we we didn't talk about travel whatsoever. Like we, I think that's. I think we, as people, are uh, we just both happen to like the same thing, which also happened to be our job. Like, we both loved our sport, which happened to be our job, and I think the precipice of us and our relationship is not based on triathlon whatsoever. I, like, not that I think I know that. <laughs> um, I don't have any involvement in his training whatsoever other than could you maybe, you know, finish at this time and get the kids because they're looking forward to seeing you. But that, like <laughs> even that, like I really, I don't put that sort of pressure on him to to do that um, and I don't get involved in his training. Like since he moved on from Dan, I moved on, on to Dan from his previous coach, um, it took him a long time to, to trust a very different process um and in terms of training and trust a new tie a new you know also a platform I mean Jan doesn't see Dan it's 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 all uploaded it's all you know delivered on your phone it's it's, it's so different to how you know he used to train how I used to train um you know paper log books um and I think I think that's good because I think at the end of the day, like he knows what he needs to do and he takes confidence, especially now in the training he's been given from Dan um, to do what he needs to do and he trusts that process and he trusts and understands how he knows how to get fit. Um, And our conversations around triathlon, I would say the, the most they ever come into play is when he is struggling or mentally, when something mentally is like going on for him or something he can't figure out that that then starts affecting his training, I think that's where we start talking. That's where triathlon, I should say, talk comes in. Um, like a prime example would have been... Uh the year Lionel Sanders came to Kona and he was in fine form and Lionel did a great job. Like he got into Jan's head. No joke. He did an excellent job. Like Jan is not bulletproof. Like in you know, there's things that can get to athletes, and um and I think that's where I guess from an outside point of view, but also understanding you know, so intimately the context of what he's trying to get his head around and why or why it's bothering him, I can help work through him like I'm not a psychologist or anything by any means, but I I understand it and I can, I guess, talk to him about it and help him figure a way to get back to just focusing on him and his performance and his racing and what he can do. Um, And I think, yeah, it's, you know, like the the, the the and and that can come up throughout the season or throughout the week if there's something he's struggling with or something that doesn't feel right. I'm I'm certainly not going to be oh well you should change this session for that session. It would be more along the context of what we're looking deeper into it. Like, what part of it are you struggling with, or what do you think is you know bothering you? And is it something that you know maybe you should discuss with Dan if it's not working on a physical level? But first of all, maybe a Establish whether it's the mental part that's actually getting in the way, not the physical. Um, and I think you know, like you know, like we talked at the beginning, like you know, well, yeah, COVID really sort of sort of spanner in everyone's works, <laughs> and you know, um, Kona not happening those few years, and and I think Jan's made no, um, you know, he's. You know, you're not kept it a secret that he would have. You know, 2020. I think you know that would have been, would have been his time and place to have said, "Okay, yeah, I, I'm. I think I'm at the height of my career. I I want to, you know, do a corner. I want to go off on top." And I'm sure there's a variety of other athletes that may have felt the same way. And I think what's happened, um, from an outside perspective, and I don't want to speak on Jan's behalf, but I just see that for him, that. A year is becomes quite structured, you know. You're you're used to knowing that on the second Saturday of October you need to peak. And your whole year gets basically worked around that. And your program of training, then you work backwards into we want one build-up Ironman, Man, where's it going to fit in? Yeah, typically around July. Um, what are the lead up races in order to make that second Saturday in October be the best day of the year. And I think with COVID, particularly um, for for yarn and I guess long horse athletes, I think there was just this roller coaster of this, oh yeah, races are on and then last minute they were, you know, had to be cancelled and you just sort of get the, the, the carpet pulled from under your feet. So there's this cycle of you're getting fit, 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 but then you don't actually race, then you don't actually take those days to recover and you don't have these build-ups, you don't have these nice ebbs and flows that happen throughout the year so for him i reckon he's just gotten to this point of just it's a lot a lot a lot a lot of training and you know young he he loves to train like he really absolutely loves it like it, even some days it sounds being like how and l do you have the energy and enthusiasm still to do what you do like um and i admire that but i think you know, like you said about him, like, you know, people are questioning where he's at and, and whether or not, you know, this, you know, obviously people look at all, you know, age and all this sort of thing. I honestly, and not because I'm in Jan's corner, but I just think that the mind, if the mind is in the right place, like, yeah, the, the and then and you can be injury and illness free, then your body has a blueprint. Like your body has a blueprint to know what it's done before. And he's been doing it a long time, a long time. Not like, it's like when they interviewed Moffy after, you know, coming and taking bronze in Beijing, they're like, oh, you just came out of nowhere. And she's like, nowhere. I've been training my whole life. (laughs) Like, And it's like, it's true, you know, like. You know, I think in triathlon there's this this aspect, of, especially in endurance sport, oh, you should never take a break. You know, or oh, you'll be get so unfit. And yes, it is a bit of a mind game, and yes, letting the body come down. But I think for young, like what's happened this year, I think is honestly a combination of of not enough racing <laughs> and not enough like ebb and flow to 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 peak, rest, recover, to race. You know, build upon. And, and come back down, and and he, yeah, I think it's, he's needed that, whereas a lot of the other guys have, have maybe still been able to double in short course races or other races, and Jan's not been a big racer in the sense of a lot of races per year. So I think, you know, I think that's been challenging for him, and then, yeah, through some, well, the last, yeah, the last thing with his hip where he crashed was just, one of the more bizarre things ever, but it's also like Jan's had plenty of these sort of bizarre kind of crashes, like what the hell, like how did that happen sort of stuff. Um, and you sort of, yeah, get back up and get over it. And I think this one, I think just, um yeah, I think, you know, I think it's honestly, it sounds funny, but sometimes it's like, you have to have something that changes the way you do things. And I think Jan has done things very well for a long time and it's worked. But he also acknowledges that there is a young breed of athletes that are absolutely flying. And he also has to acknowledge that he's got years on them too. And he's also – and age is not a bad thing. It's also experience and it's also, like I said, blueprint, and it's also he has the same, um, you know, he he has the same opportunity to to now this ama- you know ever cr- increasing technology and shoes and and training methods and and refinements that he can also continue to make as well as these young guys, and I think also just yeah evaluating like. It, it's worked one way it's been great but can you also evolve yourself and make it work another way and can you still be better and like i think if you believe that then that's pretty potent chemical to to fuel your ambitions um and yeah i'm obviously i see it firsthand and i'm I'm pretty impressed like I have to say like I I also admire the fact that he can continue to reinvent himself and I no doubt have in my mind that he will reinvent himself Um it's just been a blurry few years
0: and to go back to to your training and and your career be- before we finish up Emma yeah if we, if we were to look back at every single training session you ever, ever did in the lead-up to any race you ever did, mm-hmm. what do you think was the best session that you ever did? Where was the session where you were just like, I'm the fittest I've ever been, that was the best, I've, best thing I've ever done? And do you, Can you look back and, and remember a time that you had like that?
1: There's a few, few sessions. Like I said, the swim session before Beijing, the 150s, like, I remember that so clearly. I remember the pool, the lane, how Dennis was walking. I already had my fingernails painted. Like, I remember everything about that session. Um, and being like, oh, yeah, all right, that felt that felt really good. Um, yeah, I've had a few run sessions. Uh, like I said, 25 400s was also one of my favourite sessions. I, I love that on the track. Um I do remember having it one time I did that session in Victoria actually in Spain out on a, on just on a dirt track as well and being like, oof, that felt that felt nice. like felt like it was just flowing like okay, that felt which for running is not easy <laughs> um, I found. And same thing with the yeah, like there's a few key standout sessions for sure in that respect where I felt like I had you know, they're almost like out of body experiences where you're just like, wow you know feels as relatively effortless as it you can ever imagine <laughs> running can be but um yeah 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 I mean like we talked of I'm I'm super lucky I've got lots of amazing memories from many variety of places I've been lucky to train and and around the world um and yeah a lot of them are also made up with a lot of other athletes I've got to pick their brains and ride alongside and understand uh, the elements of our sport and racing and the, the mind game. And, um, you know, I think my memories are probably stronger in, in that instance rather than the sessions themselves, actually.
0: You said that you're such a fan of the mental side of the sport and and was something you prided yourself on as being being one of your strengths and then you've just reiterated it then. Did you ever do anything like, did you ever play mind games with your competition? Did you ever do anything to get inside their heads? Do you, do you remember any battles you had out in course where you (laughs) feel like you got the better of someone mentally and how you did it?
1: No, I don't think I played them with them, with them per se themselves in the race. I think funny enough, like one of the biggest things was, was do you remember Vanessa Fernandez? Yep. I mean, she, yeah, she got second in Beijing and, it was funny because we raced each other so seldom compared to how much we were talked about per se as racing each actually racing each other. But you, I mean, she, I used her as my nemesis all the time, particularly in hard run sessions like the Monet Getty session. Like, you know, like that she was on my shoulder, she was on my shoulder. Like, so my mind games would be with myself as as like, how do I break her? How do I? You know, I imagine I'm hearing her breathing on my shoulder. How do I how do I push harder that I don't hear that anymore? So it was more so that like using someone like that in that example, rather than when it came to the race itself, it was almost like ready and ingrained and just not pushing play, but almost like, oh, I know what to do here, you know, rather than needing to play the game out per se. Because like I said, I I you know if someone tried to surge on me a sprint on me like <laughs> i'd be done <laughs> like, it was like i i had to work on my on my front end game really hard <laughs> so you know it was a mind game between myself and my nemesis
0: <laughs> that's so fascinating like that's an insight that like that that fascinates me that like what are you thinking about to motivate you and to discipline you into in training and and how does an athlete that's so good. Like you get the, the most out of themselves mentally. I think that's not, I think those stories are just so interesting. You don't hear about them very often. Like, yeah, I I think so many people will listen to that and be like, Oh, I'm going to start doing that. Like I'm going to start picturing someone, you know, in those sessions. And yeah, the, the, just the way that it's a very different life, the life of an athlete, isn't it? Like that competitive side of you that, that you have to, like, you can't be the best in the world like you were without being so tough mentally. And And just having something different about you and and yeah to hear that that was that was so fascinating
1: it's funny you say that because like i've I've, you know especially now like with you know just taking part in fun events you know like i don't even call them races like i just do things because i want to see parts of that i wouldn't see or a trail or whatever and you know like i mean obviously it was very practice like you said like in training and it wasn't needing necessarily to be a a person it was the the mental game came about how do you talk yourself into to, to to well essentially making friends with pain like it's a physical pain and and that was actually something Brett was very good at that's that was where I think I was really shown and highlighted how that that aspect of physicality was a sensation and a feeling and but how do, you, how do you talk to it? How do you work your way through it? And, and in the end, for me, mantras work. So, you know, with running in particular, like tiring, talking to yourself is tiring, as anyone knows. But it, for me, like if I was having a tough day and I was starting out in that Monogedi session and I was just like like hurting, like what on earth am I doing? You know, everyone has it. What, what am I doing? Why this, this hurts too much oh, fuck, I just want to give up, like this, you know. But, you know, as soon as you stop, the pain goes away, immediately. So it's like rather than having that in a battle, it's like for me, I had like literally sometimes it would be breathe, 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 just finding my rhythm, focusing on my feet and just be like till my feet were moving as fast as they needed to be at 100K, just breathe, breathe, and then it'd be relax, breathe, relax, breathe, relax, breathe, like just literally talking to yourself, Then I had days where I felt so bad that I would literally chant to myself: "I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful, I feel good, I feel great, I feel." I would go over and over until I was just like, "Wow, you are seriously kooky!" But let's just keep running because you've talked yourself into it now, and let's you better get on with it. You know, like, but it's it, it, and I'm not to say that that's simple, but and not to say that it's a distraction. It's just a tool to train and. There's that part, but I've also questioned in myself lately as well. Like, is it just an innate competitiveness in some people? Because I'll give you an example. We went to, to Israel a couple of weeks ago in the school holidays. And I did a night run, like with a friend from there, just Take part in a city fun night run, and I was, and she's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll take you to the night run. We can run together." I was like, "Cool, sounds good. I just want to see this, you know, Tel Aviv at night. sounds sounds super fun." The the gun goes, and I'm like, I cannot help myself. Not because I want to win, like I know I'm not going to win. I was like halfway ten thousand people deep, you know, in the start line. I was like, you know, my intentions are, I'm I'm going to have fun. I just want to chill. I'm just going to run, and I'm like oh, my God, this feels amazing. And then I just get into this mode of like, oh, my God, I just love that feeling of just pushing on the edge. And I'm like, that there must be a part in some people, though, that that is just in you, of that pushing that barrier, that line, because sadistically there's something that you like about it.
0: <laughs> I think for sure. And all the great athletes talk about it, and you're definitely one of them. And I think, like, it's also funny hearing you say that, you know, like how, how kooky am I? How weird am I? And I can relate to that. And, you know, I'm sure everyone can relate to that. And, you know, we're not near the level of athlete you, you, you were, but that like, when you're out training and you're doing a lot of training, like, and as triathletes or runners or cyclists or swimmers, you do so much training compared to, you know, team sports, you, you constantly training. And a lot of that's by yourself. And a lot of it's like really draining mentally and, and hard to do. And you, do you ever have weirder thoughts in your life or like are you ever more of a weirdo in your own head than when you're training like you can be out riding your bike or running and you're just having like the most bizarre thoughts or like saying the weirdest stuff to yourself and it's just like it's just part of training and I reckon no one would know that every person who was trained for triathlon or running or cycling Hears me say that and here's you say like oh how much of a weird like talk like realizing saying to yourself how much of a kook am I how weird am I you can relate to it yeah. straight away everyone goes like oh yeah I do like everyone who's done that can relate to them you know being three hours yeah. on a bike ride by themselves in the middle of nowhere and like literally having weird ass conversations with themselves in their head or like looking at something and having the most weird thought ever and then you realize it well, like an hour after finishing or like even sometimes you realize in the moment you're like what the hell like how am I this weird or like why did I think that whereas you can't I don't think you can resonate with that if you've never done these kind of sports just because the pure amount of time you're in your own head and how like you have to distract yourself and and get through the training so to hear that even like you know someone as good as you had those same thoughts is it's really fascinating and like an an interesting part of, of being an endurance athlete
1: yeah, yeah, no, definitely for sure. Yeah, no, you're right. You do spend a lot of time in your own head, so I guess you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work that part. It's it, it's a muscle as well, isn't it? You gotta work that part as well while you can,
0: and accept you're in a weirdo. And hey, Emma, probably my last big question I have. Like, I could go back and talk about individual races and go over so much more in your career, but oh, we've already been going for like two hours. Um, yes. the the last big question I really wanted to ask you because you know this is since I started this podcast this is a conversation I've wanted to had wanted to have and I'm, I'm hoping you you sort of uh, can see how, how like big a bigger fan I am of you and how how much I admire the career that you had and the athlete that you were um, are you going to ever get back involved in the sport and and coach or or use that wealth of knowledge that you have or is triathlon not part of your future anymore? You know, will you be there with Yarn and, and be at races and be involved in the the, the following of the sport and, and meeting friends at the sport and going to races? But will you, will you never have a, an actual role in, in, you know, coaching or mentoring or being involved uh, maybe in short course, like the Australian short course triathlon scene or, or you know, over in Spain where you guys are, are living now? Is, is, is any part of you going to... Get back involved in triathlon in a professional sense? I,
1: I, I don't think so. Like, I don't think, I don't, yeah, I, I, I would, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, even when I retire were like, are you going to do coaching? I was like, no, I just, I don't want to deal with more people like myself. Like, we are weird. <laughs> no, um, no I, I think the coaching part, you know, has evolved so much um, that I think, you know, um, uh, no, you know what to be honest it's it's not where I it's that that's not what I love. I do love the mental aspect. I love um, yeah the 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 why, the drive um the the figuring out you know what works for you um because yeah I think I think success particularly in an individual sport is so individual and it needs to be appropriate. For everyone, you know, for the right person, and that includes having, you know, a good team of people around you, and then, you know, figuring out, you know, why you do it, how you do it, and and getting the most out of yourself. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say never say never, but, um, yeah, not at this point in time. I think, I think if 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 there was ever a part, it would definitely be the, the mental aspect or the. Yeah, maybe like the dentist, the sounding board, the, the deciphering of um, yeah, inner voices, the deciphering of um, of understanding obviously the physical sensations of, of what occurs in training, but um, how to hone that um, when you race and, and develop things like we said, like you know, your mantras, your self-talk, your, your things that when it comes to race day, it should all be kind of pre-programmed, you know, it should be all quite automated. Um, because I think that's what, you know, a lot of good athletes will often say is that, yeah, they're, they're in, I guess that's what in the zone is. And the more you're in it and things are taken out of your control, how do you get back into your zone? And I think that's a part of, um, yeah, I guess of sport and competition that I love. Um, but I think for now, like it's funny. I think you know, having kids, it's 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 interesting to to go back to why you actually did what you did, and also at the end of the day, you just actually loved it. Like as a eight year old, okay, yes, you may have had dreams and stuff, but you know, there comes a point in age where kids are, they decide they they of what they want to do and what they do and they don't like. And like I say, I laugh about my two little Australians that literally, like, when are we going skiing? And I see them on a mountain and, you know, Luca, and I'm like, how do you know how to read a mountain so well? Like, how do you know, like, he has an affinity for it. And I'm like, there are just some things that maybe you learn and whether or not he wants to take that further. But I'm like, the first thing is he just loves it. Just let that go, let him enjoy that. And all the rest will follow because it does, like, it will, everything will flow on from
0: that. It's a pretty good note to wrap it up on, Emma. Um, (laughs) It's like, just such a surreal thing for me to even be having this conversation, because, um, like, any modern-day triathlete, like, I can sort of, I watch them, and, like, as an adult, I'm just like, yeah, it's not that big a deal talking to them. I I love it, and I love hearing about their training and their career, and I'm always super appreciative of their time, But, but, you know, there's something about, like, someone who you watched and I guess admired as an athlete growing up and yeah, so especially as an Australian, like, like I was, we were talking about before, like, you know, Emma Snowsall, like the Snowsall name was just massive. It was almost a household name in Australia. And I don't know if there's ever really been a triathlete who, who has been like that in the history of Australia. Like it's, it's probably just you. Like I don't even think the other big names like Craig Alexander and Chris McCormack and, you know, Greg Welch and, like all those big names and Emma Moffat, Emma Moffat was probably relatively close at one point, but yeah, I don't know. I think you might be the only household name um, of a, of a triathlete ever in the history of our country, which is quite crazy. And so it's, it's super surreal as a massive fan of the sport to, to be chatting to you, but like, yeah, I just, bloody appreciate your time and it's been such a such an honor getting to to know you a bit more and and hearing about these stories in depth and and asking you the questions that I've always wanted to ask you about your career so yeah I just want you to know how appreciative I am and um, and and how much this this particular episode of, of how they train meant to me and 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 thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It, yeah, it's very kind of you and nice of you too. And I, like I said, I it, it does often feel surreal to say that, yeah, or to, to think that you inspire other people. And, and like I said, having that own, my own experience of that. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the conversation and the depth. And I've certainly talked about things that I've um, never talked about before. So you've done a good job. <laughs> and um yeah, looking looking forward to to um yeah, hearing how it goes and like I said, if there's ever a second episode and how they should have trained. <laughs> we, can, we we can put another 2 hours in there.
0: <laughs> no, nah, for sure if the offer's on the table to have an emma Nosal part 2 in 2023, we've got to do that because All right. uh, I could write a list of at least 15 20 more questions that I desperately would want to ask you and Um, I know there's so much like there's so much in your career that we didn't touch on today, but we we can like with the first half of your career, we didn't even touch on and I know that from from following your career and and researching your career that there's some great stories like we didn't even touch on the 2004 Olympics, which I think is probably a great story.
1: Yeah, and 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 I'm already thinking of other answers to the questions you've already asked me about sessions. I was like, oh yeah, that one, that was a really good one. I remember that one.
0: <laughs> Which one in particular? Give us one more to go out on.
1: Um, the well the, the one that like I think that really, you know, was a big one and this was very early on, standing out in my career and um, still being coached by Brett was was a Christmas Day. Christmas Day in Australia uh, must have been 2003, I reckon. I reckon 2002, 2003. I have to go back and really look at it and think about it. I could figure it out. It was the, um, yeah, 2200s, 4400s, 2200s. And, um, yeah, going out on Christmas Day on my own to the track with water, I think a Coke. And I was like, right, this is... How many other I was just like, all right, how many other people are doing this on Christmas Day? <laughs> it was like, it was one of those things where you just gotta plant your little seeds, you know, and be like, okay, these are things when the race racing gets hard sometimes is to be like, right, I have done I have done the hard yards at times and I have put in the hard work and yeah, it was it was a good one.
0: That's sixteen kilometers of hard running around a track on Christmas morning. That's um that's crazy, isn't it? yeah yeah that is now when you think about it <laughs> yeah the athlete mentality particularly the the world-class endurance you know like the world world-class to be the best in a sport where everyone is training hard and mm. and to be the best you have to train so hard like the mentality there like not many people do that kind of thing you know like a lot of athletes might see just getting to the gym for 45 minutes on christmas morning as a big a big thing or Going for an easy two-hour ride, but to do 16k of really fast running around a track, you know, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy what you used to do, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. But it's like you know, you have a goal and you have the steps and the process to get there, and you you plan it out, and you know, somehow it all seems a little bit normal at the time, you know, in some respect. When you look at yeah, yeah, that is a bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and
0: you look back on it, and you, yeah, that was a different life, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Awesome, Emma. Wow. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Really, really enjoyed
0: Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: You too. Bye.
0: See you, Emma.